Well, today we have Jerry Pennington joining us. Thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Awesome. Welcome yeah. Travel. Um, what we want to do is just go through your history for the purpose of the legends of Carolina martial arts. We got enough time. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and we have Sensei Brian Petta sitting with us. Yeah, well. he's been real hospitable. He's awesome. Um, yeah. So you just go through some basic stuff. Currently, you live in Oregon. Southern Oregon, Southern a town Oregon. called Jacksonville. Yeah. So what's your connection to the Carolinas? How did you get from the Carolinas and then to Oregon? Well, uh, the Carolinas were my home during the, uh, uh, from 1974 to 77, 78. Uh, and I was in the Carolinas two or three times while uh, my headquarters were in Virginia also. So Carolinas is where I started the NKA, of my martial arts sport karate productions in North Carolina. Okay. Um, so you're married? Married to Eva Marie. How long have you been married to Eva? We've been together about 38 years now. 38 years. About your children. How many children do you have? We got uh, one uh, with her, uh, Jared Ray. I have uh, two older sons with Loretta May Ortega. Aaron and Eric, and I have a daughter, Erica, with uh, Mary Virginia Servino. Uh, that's a four altogether. Four kids. Yeah. All right. Let me ask you this. Changing gears completely. I saw this in your bio. They call you the untamed lion. <laughs> Can you tell us a story about where you got that? Well, I guess it was actually kind of given to me. Uh, uh, when I started my martial art career, I was in Southern California and uh, Arizona, uh, New Mexico uh, with different teachers. And uh, uh, I was fighting at that time as far west, as far east as Colorado and attending most of the major tournaments in Arizona, Texas, California. Uh, and the name just came up because of my long hair and my beard and and people would call me uh, guy looks like a lion doesn't he guy looks like a lion that came up over and over and I guess pretty much the way I fought too so I was uh, um, kind of a uh, ferocious fighter to me it was go just go 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 forward 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 and that's where the name came from. Uh, and it just kind of stuck over the years. Uh, Jerry Smith uh, mentioned it in a Black Belt Magazine article one time. And then uh, the cover of Karate Illustrated uh, had a picture of me there. And the name just kind of stuck. Yeah. Definitely looks like a lion's mane. I got you. Um, so you have, you have a long history between uh, sport karate and kickboxing. Can you just talk a little bit about how you went from which one was first for you then how you went from one to the other well when i was a kid uh, my mother worked in a fish cannery called starkist in san pedro california and we went to the uh, ymca there so while she was working and the boys would participate in the activities they had at the y uh, in san pedro california and they had a boxing program there in a martial art program there and I just did both those programs so uh, I did a little golden glove boxing and and uh, uh, I really liked contact sport so and I got pretty good at that and pretty good at uh, karate do uh, in the Shotokan style there at the YMCA we were mm, 8 to 12 years old and so we had we had a good time it was uh, stayed with me forever still is with me so that's how you that's how you met uh, Kaylor Atkins, right? Mm -hmm. Your first black belt. Yep. From so, can you talk a little about? Well, Kaylor had a, uh, he he was a Shotokan's uh, stylist, and he had a, a, a YMCA groups there uh, in Southern California, okay. and I stayed with them until uh, I went into the Shorinru, the Shurai, and the Shurin uh, system of study with uh, Thomas Kreitz, uh, Jim Hawks, and uh, Robert Trias. Robert Trias is a big name. Yeah, I would say he was a big name, yeah. Tell us a little bit about him. Uh, oh, Shihan. Uh, he was a, uh, uh, from the uh, Korean War. Okay. 
He was a uh, highway patrolman, uh, uh, police officer in Arizona most of his adult life. Uh, he started karate, the first dojo, uh, a branded karate do in Arizona in I think 1945, 1943, something like that. And uh, I met him in the early 60s. Um, he came to California many times. Uh, he, he, he said, I have a fondness for you, Jerry. And it was because I was uh, you know, excellent at martial art at the time. Uh, and he would uh, instruct me uh, through uh, Tom Kreitz and a, a fellow by the name of Phil Perales, who is also one of his uh, black belts there in Southern California. Um, that's my, uh, my association with Mr. Trias. And then I went from uh, that uh, uh, Shorin Shorai Karate Do to the Shorin Ru system uh, that Tadashi Yamashita had with Mike Stone uh, and Ed Parker in Los Angeles, California. And uh, Mike had a school in Huntington Beach, California, uh, a place called Los Alamitos. And I trained at that school and taught at that school uh, for two and a half years. Okay. Was that under... Um Tadashi Yamashita? Is that no, it was actually the short in Ru was from Tadashi. Okay. But Tosh wasn't in the country at that time. Okay. He came right about that time. Mike Stone's school uh, uh, in Los Alamitos was the home school and, uh, that Tadashi Yamashita came to when he arrived here in America. Okay. He came to our school with short pants and a smile. <laughs> Mike Stone, you still have a friendship and a relationship with Mike Stone. Uh, yeah, Mike's in the Philippines. He is a, uh, a personal motivate uh, motivator. He does personal training uh, at his home in the Philippines. Uh, he puts people on special diets, trains them in the martial arts. They live in his home. Uh, for two, three, five weeks, for how long, or, uh, how long, how, however long, he makes an agreement with them to improve their life, uh, and he does uh, also seminars, uh, symposiums uh, in Australia and in other countries. Um, Mike is a uh, he's a loner. Mike's always been a very strong personality, a great motivator. I still have a great rapport with my teacher, Mike Stone. Right, even after all these years. Oh yeah, awesome. there's only one Mike Stone. Okay. There's only one Jerry Pennington, <laughs> and uh, we talk to each other quite often. Okay. Yeah. What's the difference to you between Shotokan and Shorinryu? Okay, so um, to get into the history of karate, we know that it came to Okinawa before it got to Japan. Okay, that's pretty common knowledge, but in doing so. Uh, uh, the movements of the kata and the movements of the kicks, blocks, and punches, because that's all it really is, uh, is kicks, blocks, and punches. Uh, open hand techniques uh, is the application of the specific movement. And uh, some have shorter, quicker, more mobile strikes. Others are more linear, uh, 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 muscle motivated by power, strength, and kimi at the end of the movement which they call the explosion part of the technique and I think that's really what it is in the styles um, I trained a lot of Kempo with the Ed Parker group uh, I was in the, the that first wave of sport karate in in California uh, called the Ed Parker's Internationals and that was uh, a great experience in my life because I got to fight with people like uh, Cho Lewis uh, Arnold Eurekitis, Benny's older brother, um, uh, Thomas uh, uh, Le Puppet would come out there from New York. Uh, we had uh, uh, Tony Tuleris, we had uh, uh, Steve Labonte, we had uh, Steve Sanders, we had, jeez, uh, uh, I could name names, mm -hmm. Jerry Taylor, Vic Carrera, Bob Alegria, Ralph Alegria, Tino Teleosiga. Uh, I could just keep on going with the names that were very, very good martial artists and style-wise. So at that time, we called it soft and hard. So if you were a Kanchikembo or a Kempo or a Kung Fu stylist, 
you were called a soft stylist. If you were the Okinawan, the Japanese, the Korean, uh, uh, you were called a hard stylist. And that pretty much defined the style differences. Okay. How did that for you, how did you go from there to sport karate? Well, uh, being a traditionalist in the beginning, uh, we were exposed to sport karate all the time. So you had choices, man. You could say, well, I'm going to go to this karate tournament uh, and see what I can do. And my teachers, Tom Kreitz, Mike Stone, and Robert Trieth, they uh, pretty much dictated that if you're going to go to a sport karate tournament, you're going to do weapons, kata, and you're going to do uh, open hand kata, and you're going to do fighting uh, uh, kumite. So that's what you did. And uh, you, you did the best you can with, with the material and the knowledge you had at that time in your journey. What was the reasoning behind them making you do all, do all the different parts? Uh, to be a well-rounded martial artist, you have to participate in all the elements. If you just came in for the exercise, uh, you might as well go to uh, a different system of study uh, gotcha. or a different genre altogether. If you're a well-rounded martial artist, you know uh, Kabuto, you know uh, your uh, self-defense laws of grab arts, you know your kata, and you know all your basic movements. Uh, because it's like in football, you have defense, offense. Uh, in basketball, you have defense, offense. In karate, you have defense, offense. So you have to be well-rounded in order to be a good practitioner of your specific art. I mean, it makes sense. I, I assume I know the answer. But out of those in the tournament world, in the sport martial arts world, what was your favorite? What got your passion? Was, was it the fighting? But I, but I also want to say I think I've heard you enjoyed the forms as well. What, if you had to look back on your journey, what, what did you enjoy the most? Well, I enjoyed the journey. Enjoyed the journey. Yeah, you know what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. But uh, I think uh, I was more captivated because of my experience with, with boxing. Uh, uh, I was more captivated by the competition of one-on-one, -on -one, the confrontation. So uh, fighting probably was more my, more my forte, but uh, uh, forms were, they were never dull to me, they were never boring. They, they, a lot of people say they're senseless or they don't have any meaning. I, I, I don't believe any of that. I think that they teach us timing. They teach us rhythm. They teach us fluid body movement. Absolutely. They teach us balance. They teach us control. They teach us thought pattern. So uh, as an element in karate, uh, kata and fighting, uh, uh, you can like one or the other, but you like them both. But fighting was more of my forte. Yeah. Fighting was your forte, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I sparred with a lot of people in this country. And that's when uh, you, could pound, you could pound the body and touch the face. You could pound the body hard. You could break ribs if you wanted to with bare knuckles. It was okay. A lot of the guys maybe listening to this, I know Gene, for example, when you started in the 60s and 70s, let's talk about fighting at tournaments. It gets said a lot. It's typed in paper. But I'd love to hear some stories come out of your mouth. Fighting equipment until Jun Ri and some of those guys... Back in the day, you guys, I think, wore maybe a mouth guard and a protective cup, and you guys hit each other. <laughs> well, I didn't wear, I never wore a cup in my whole life. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, and I don't need, yeah, and I don't even want to wear one, so, but uh, not that you don't get hit in that area uh, if you're fighting, but, um, you know, you, it's hard to compare uh, sport karate today to sport karate 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Absolutely. It's hard to compare them because in any sport, and I've said this before, and I think it's pretty cool really, uh, you have UFC, you have uh, 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 these other fight organizations. Bellator. You, Bellator, you have uh, Batman contests. I mean, we used to have a ring to take to a, uh, a city and have Batman contests and say, tell the, the military in there, find your two uh, uh, three best people at this weight class, and we got guys in a ring. We're going to come fight you guys and have Batman contests. But uh, that's those people who enjoyed the confrontation, the sport. 
but in those days, you were you had to be taught the word kimi, K-I-M-E. And once you understood what that meant, and you use it in practical application in your kata and in your dojo kumite sparring, you learn to control the actual depth of your weapon, whether it be a kick or a punch or a block. And consequently, you became very good at doing that. And to pot, try to play that into the sport, because now you have rules, because I tell you what, I'd, 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 knowing Karate Do and I was a cooler in a bar in Baltimore for two years, I am so happy that I learned Karate Do because that saved my life many times as a cooler in a high profile fighting situation, for real. But in the sporting aspect, since you have rules, uh, uh, the rules can play a, uh, an important part about how bad somebody can get injured. You take uh, some of these UFC fighters that have karate experience uh, and some jujitsu experience, and you combine those together, you have a bad actor on a sport level. But there's also the rules. Uh, in them days of the blood and guts, uh, I have so much respect for myself and for others who participated during that era because you did get a broken bone. Very few people who sparred in that in that era did not have a broken bone very few i think the mentality was also different back then you, you get a small injury broken bone got cut up you you mentally emotionally perhaps maybe not you, you would tape it up and just keep on going with life yeah now people are a little i don't want to say weaker perhaps is not the right word but a little bit more cognizant of it's just two totally different time eras and i love to hear yeah that. i'll give you an example of that uh i was fighting uh bob alegria who I went to high school with, and he was a student of Chuck Norris's. And Mike Stone put on a tournament in, uh, in Long Beach, California, and uh, it was a team thing. And uh, I, I was throwing a reverse punch uh, to Bob's midsection. And a lot of people develop certain habits in their training, and I had a habit of letting this thumb kind of just hang out over here when I when I when I when I'd work out from wearing gloves from boxing but in karate you've got to get that thumb down underneath your hand so I was throwing the punch and my thumb hit the sleeve and it broke it right here at the bendix and I was doing it so fast and furiously that it bent my thumb back and it laid down here and didn't go back so my thumb was laying the other direction and I looked down at my hand and my thumb was laying over here, <laughs> and I picked the thumb back up and put it back over there, you know. <laughs> Times are different. And we just went on with the match, you know. So uh, now, now I'm sort of now that happens. You got 13 medics running to the side. Oh yeah, you're talking about who you're going to disqualify and what's going to happen. And yeah, you just bent your thumb back. Call the ambulance going. and whatever. But but so uh, what, but let's take that to the next uh, the next step. When you deliver a specific punch, you had rules also. And the rules were that if you touch the face you, uh, and you, there's no injury, no head snap back, and you controlled your punch, you got your point. And then it went to light contact, and then it went with the pads to full contact. So if you were an educated uh, practitioner, of both the contact and the non-contact, you fared probably a lot better than most. And so that's what I loved about sport karate in the blood and guts days was that I could just crank the kicks and punches to the body and the torso and feel real good about it and then practice my kime and my martial art mental, physical, and spiritual control with my techniques to the, to the upper part of the body and to the head. Uh, and so that's kind of interesting, but those days were those were great to days. To clarify for Gene and perhaps anybody else, you talk about the blood and guts era. So in my brain, in my in my history that I've studied, a lot of people would consider maybe the 80s, late 70s, 80s to be the golden era of sport karate and, and whatnot. 
the blood and guts era was before that that that's the yeah, 60s 60s into the 70s early 70s early yeah 70s. i think mr Ree came out with the the sporting gear uh in 1970 or 71 right that's in right. there um and it was a hard transition a lot of people didn't want to make that transition uh and that's when i made the transition and i decided that uh well if the sport's going to go that direction then they better be as tough as street fights uh, and basically that's what they've become with UFC and uh, you know who's to say that it's a a bad element in our society or a bad thing to do I I think that competition is great uh, as long as the rules connotate sport and don't fall into that plagiaristic uh, um, way of uh, combat I mean yeah uh, I can't even tell you how many children that I've worked with over the years that because I taught them to fight were a better human being. So there's reasons for that too. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say that there seems to be, I mean, anytime you spend, you spend any time online researching anything about fighting or martial arts, there's a huge divide between the, the martial arts and fighting, let's say yeah. the UFC mindset. What do you, it might be a political question, but what do you, what do you sort of attribute <coughs> Well, uh, you know, if if you look at the mindset of UFC uh, as compared to the mindset of a um, traditional uh, uh, Americanized uh, karate do, uh, it's really two different things. But basically, the the concepts of the two should be to become a better human being. But what happens is you get people who don't have the uh, intrinsic uh, and uh, ethnical uh, uh, concepts of karate do in uh, the um, training of, uh, of the UFC or of other Bellator or other fighting associations. Their concept is get in the ring, the best man wins. It's not really necessary the best man, it's in one day you can win, the next day you could lose. It's who's the toughest at that moment. So training got into that. And now you're seeing in these uh, sporting events actually more highly trained people than uh, in the beginning than it was before. So I think it's, it's a question of what is that person's heart like? What is that person's uh, spiritual qualities like? And with kids, I would rather for them to look up to a disciplined martial artist than to look up to a person that uh, uh, is is untrained both physically, mentally, and spiritually. I dig that. Kind of a kind of a. Uh, um, what do you want your example to be? Mm-hmm. And my example for that would be to be a trained great fighter. You need uh, a mind, body, spirit control, and mind, body, spirit giving to others. And, so you got to have different, you know, different concept. Right. Who's and the who's the closest to that that you see right now? At the pinnacle of their career, maybe in the UFC. Anybody come to mind? Well, you know, there's. Uh, uh, I, I like uh, actually uh, uh, Rousey, the girl fighter for for nice. UFC. Uh, I, I thought she is a good example of a well-rounded fighter, both spiritually, uh, emotionally. Um, uh, mentally and i think that kind of sums up my opinion of that um also there's uh the tough some of the tough guys uh in the beginning and even in the end uh uh live what they preach as opposed to preach and not live or to propagate ego and propagate uh that and a lot of them, a lot of them are you know they just put that out there, but in really inside they're not that way. There's a lot like that too. But any anybody who gets into that limelight in any given genre uh, has got a responsibility to themselves and to those that are viewers or those people that want to emulate that because uh, kids need good example. I don't care what age they are, and if they. S- if they if they see a bad example, then they're going to imitate that bad example. If they see a good example, they're going to imitate that good example. That's how it works. 
and us as teachers and mentors and parents and grandparents, uh, we need to point them in the right direction because it's hard enough out there anyway, you know. Okay, so you, uh, according to your official bio, you started uh, your competitive career in 1969, which is longer than most of us have been alive. Myself has been alive, much less practicing karate. So let's start at the beginning. We, we talked earlier a little bit about how you, you discovered sport karate in the first place, but how did the competitive career start for you? Let's see. Uh, the, that exact moment? <laughs> that exact moment. <laughs> it was an epitome. No. <laughs> Epiphany, what do you call it? Uh, actually, it was kind of a, 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 a just a happening. Uh, I, you know, I had had martial arts experience prior to uh, to that, and uh, uh, had been studied boxing, kickboxing, a little bit of wrestling, and and. Uh, There was a fellow. His name is Jerry Warren, and uh, we walked into a a dojo together many years ago, and we competed with each other as as buddies. He's still alive. His son runs a school now. It's called the Samurai Academy in Fullerton, California. And uh, there was a karate tournament at the local high school, and so we went and. uh, I won first place in forums and first place in fighting and first place in weapons. And I thought to myself, wow, that was pretty good, Jerry. And uh, then uh, uh, we started with the Kempo people. They were having a tournament in Los Angeles called, I mean, in Long Beach called the Internationals. And it was the premier tournament of the year uh, in the United States, actually. Uh, and then Mr. Trias had a, a, a tournament in uh, in Indiana. Uh, it was called uh, Grand Nationals. And then uh, Professor Giddy had one in Colorado. And then they had them in New York. And then they started them in Florida. And so it just became a big... You could go to these tournaments. And a lot of uh, areas in the United States, they stayed within their own area. They had a West Coast, uh, they had a Midwest, and they had a Southeast, they had a, a, a Northeast. And most of the fighters stayed in their, in their own area and did quite well. And I did quite well in my area, Los Angeles. I was called the lion, and you don't want to get in the ring with Jerry Painting because he's going to kick your butt. So, so that got to be my reputation in the, in in the West, and I fought guys like Jerry Taylor and Vic Carrera and John Natividad, uh, Sua, uh, Steve Labonte, uh, who's the guy that's up in? Uh, uh, everybody was afraid of him. Uh, um, Tony Tillery's, uh Aldo Costco's boys, uh, all the West Coast people, and. They, when we'd line up, they'd always go away from me. So, I, I knew that I had, you know, a good, a good, uh, good uh, uh, sport karate ability, and it just that's where it grew from. From that beginning, uh, uh, as I got a little older, I just said, "Well, you know what? I'm gonna be the first guy to get the heck out of here and travel and fight in the East and see what I'm gonna be a West Coast boy on the East Coast." So. I got in an airplane and signed a contract with Jim and Al Tracy and Joe Lewis was my mentor at the time and I went east. I went to Baltimore, Maryland. Wow. And uh, that was my sport karate journey up to that point. Because I was the baddest actor in the west and now I wanted to be the baddest actor in the east. (laughs) that about the time, this may be mixing two subjects, Mike Stone I've heard of, the, I believe it was the Four Seasons tournaments that he yeah. promoted, and I think maybe you promoted. Was that about that same time period? It was real close, because what happened uh, with that is Mike uh, Stone, Chuck Norris, Bob Wall, and I forget the other fellow's name now, but there was four of them or five of them, and, and they uh, started the Four Seasons, and they were going to have a tournament, and they had a little patch you could wear. It had the Four Seasons on it. And... Uh, 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 I won that tournament a couple of times, and then I, as I moved east, 
Um, Mr. Stone asked me, he said, Jerry, you're going to, I was doing quite well the first two years, three years, four years. And Mike asked me, uh, uh, I want to uh, make my four seasons a national sporting sport karate. And I said, well, how can I help Mike? And he said, you can buy a franchise. So Mike sold two franchises, one to Al Jean Correa and one to Jerry Pennington. And uh, he had the Midwest, I had the East, and uh, uh, Mike had the West. And we formed the Nationals Four Seasons Karate Championships. And then Mike would have the Nationals uh, Four Seasons Nationals in Las Vegas. And my first one, I had Mike uh, and Priscilla Presley come back East uh, and be special guests at my first tournament was held in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, and I think one of my black belts, Jimmy Horsley, uh, won that, uh, won that, won that. And that's when my, my association with that, that man came about. He was, eventually became a member of the, uh, undefeated kickboxing team called the Charlotte Warhawks. But, uh, yeah, we, we went east and, and, uh, so you're right, uh, Mr. Pena, it was, uh, I was the first one to have a four seasons tournament in the, remember, East, in the East Coast. Right in the East Coast, yeah. We had four, four of them. Uh, no, f probably about six four seasons karate championships in the East. But yeah, that was the uh, transition. So I started fighting in New York. I fought a guy named Bong Yu, uh, who was a very uh, a controversial character. I fought him in Madison Square Garden in New York. I fought uh, Artis Simmons. Uh, if you look that name up, you'll see that he was probably the best front kicker in all of the history of sport karate. I fought Ken Knudsen, uh, JT Will at that time, um, Joe Corley around that time, and uh, I, I, I beat them all. And it was fun. Beat them all. <laughs> it was fun. Uh, I've only lost five sport karate matches in my life. So pretty good record for good. doing it for about 20 years um, yeah so that's you were based out of Virginia at that point uh, at that point I was just had left Maryland okay. and was based out of uh, Richmond Virginia with a man named Wayne Yule as partners we bought out a uh, school that belonged to uh, Goju Ru stylist Chris Armstrong on uh, on uh, what's the Broad Street downtown in the fan next to the uh, Virginia Commonwealth University. And we even bought the building eventually, but I had some great students come out of that school. Alan Miller, who later became part of June Rees, Jeff Smith's teams in DC. Uh, Keith Hayflick, a second rated light heavyweight in the world. Uh, Jimmy Horsley, middleweight, first rated middleweight in the world. Um, Let's see who else. Oh, Warren Cockrell came out of that school. Uh, man, I had a lot of good black belts come out of that school in Virginia on Broad Street. So how do you, so how do you make it from Virginia to the Carolinas? Well, uh, I wanted to travel, uh, uh, and so I bought a, a mini home, and my wife and I got in that mini home. We started on the road and traveled, uh, and I sold my school in Virginia to, uh, uh, in my interest, we had five schools in Virginia, and uh, uh, I sold them to uh, my interest to Wayne Ewell, uh, and he kept Alan Miller and, uh, and um, Warren Cottrell and Sam Justice, and uh, what was that boy's, the other boy's name? Um, uh, uh, we had an Indian fellow too there. Uh, it's hard to remember all these guys' names. But uh, uh, we left that there in Virginia and it was well taken care of. And I went on the road for a year. And then I came, uh, I got offered to, uh, uh, to go to Charlotte, North Carolina. I thought it was a great, so I spent about two weeks there uh, uh, analyzing the community, um, doing, uh, what do they call that when you do area, area uh, geographic, uh, Demographics. Demographics to see where the best place to open a school was. And I chose uh, a South Boulevard uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I opened a school on South Boulevard. Uh, and that's when I met uh, uh, 
Randy Walden, uh, Bruce Brucci, Dave Adams, uh, all the all the boys from Gastonia, from Denver, from Salisbury, from uh, Fort Mill. Uh, that's where all those guys came from, and Mr. Danny McCall, uh, Randy and Ricky Smith, Bob Young, uh, just a bunch of uh, roughnecks in North Carolina, and some of them would cross the border from South Carolina and come up here too. And Let's talk about that for a second. There seems to be a, a particularly hardy person that comes from the North Carolina karate lineage. There's just something about it that they feel tougher. Men. Well, I, I, I was there teaching there for five years, and the 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 crop that I produced out of there was a great crop. I mean, if a farmer had the best wheat one year, he remembers it, and that was some of the best wheat that, that I grew. Uh, I had the Charlotte Warhawks were a great team. Uh, we were undefeated. Dale Cook's boys came from Oklahoma. Joe Corley's people came from Georgia uh, and Florida, and we had teams come down from Pennsylvania and from New Jersey, and we just cleaned house. It was unbelievable, great team. Uh, I'm, I, in fact, I made my insignia, the one that I wear on my shirts and on my dojo. <coughs> it started an organization at that time called ACNA, American Karate Academies National Association. It still exists today. I monitor it uh, yearly. Uh, uh, it's a closed uh, uh, organization with quality martial artists. Um, if I have my tomoy right here, sir. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you if you if you know the meaning of that, there's a lot of time, energy, and and uh, you have to be a lifer. What we call a lifer. So yeah, uh, uh, the Warhawks were a good. Uh, we had uh, Tony Lopez came in there and fought with us. Uh, Demetrius Edwards came down. Uh, uh, Lenny Ferguson from Los Angeles came over. Master Robert Trias was always our special guest. Philip Keppel from uh, Peoria would be our, uh, we had Jim Harrison who just passed. God bless your soul, Jim Harrison. R.I.P. little brother. Um, he was our referee. Uh, we had martial artists from all over the country come to our our tournaments, not tournaments, uh, fights. I had 17 fights. Uh, I had a TV show called Friday Night Fights, and uh, we did really well as a sport karate team. We started at NKA. I had 60 fighters signed at one time, uh, all under contract. Some of them trained at Happy's Lake in, in uh, China Grove, North Carolina. Uh, I had middleweight champion, uh, lightweight champions, uh, uh, light heavyweight champions. Um, uh, yeah, that was exciting, exciting times. I lost a lot of money. I lost a lot of money in that for producing those fights. But it was worth every cent. But it was worth every cent. It was worth me. every cent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and, and to, if I think back now, uh, I had a little sign on my desk, kind of like what you have here. Uh, and uh, mine was a little bigger, not as not quite as beautiful, but bigger. And in this office, I sat in this chair, and it had a little sign on my desk, and it said, "President." <laughs> Who are so proud of that, you know? <laughs> Who are you? I'm the president. <laughs> now, who wants that job? <laughs> Nobody. Nobody. Yeah. So yeah, that's how I uh, eventually came to uh, the Carolinas. And uh, we opened schools in South Carolina, North Carolina. Um, we had uh, uh, Mr. Danny McCall, uh, who became one of our uh, rated light heavyweight fighters, uh, trained with us at our Southside school. And he became a mentor for uh, the Fort Mill School. Uh, it's the longest running school uh, in this whole, whole all of Carolinas at Fort Mill. It's been operating right now for, since 1971. And it's in the same location, wow. so that's a long time. That's a lot of history in one yeah. spot. No, it might be 74, but who's counting it? 71, 72, 73, 74? All right, all four and 74. Yeah. I start counting it. Yeah. So talk a little bit about the significance of the Warhawks. Why you, why are they called the Warhawks? 
Well, uh, uh, there's just a name that you pick. Uh, why are the Carolina Panthers called the Carolina Panthers? You know, uh, uh, I liked Warhawks because of that Indian, uh, I, I study Indian culture, and I always have. So it was, uh, uh, Warhawks was one of the Iroquois, Iroquois and uh, 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 Mohican's weapons, it was called a Warhawk. And it was shaped uh, concave with a long wide blade and, and a point on the other side. So it was a Warhawk. Uh, if you see the movie Pat The Patriot, that's the, that's the tool, yeah. In fact, m uh, Mr. Danny McCall just sent me one, a uh, uh, really nice one too, yeah. I have it on a picture, it's pretty cool. Let's see. Yeah, that's a nice, that's a, it's, it's a, and I'm practicing with the weapon, which is kind of fun. It's, <laughs> you know, it's kind of fun. Mm -hmm. So, uh, <clears throat> acne, that is an, you call it an open karate association. Yeah, uh, A-K-A-N-A -A is American Karate Academy's National Association. And you find it as open, not necessarily traditional. Well, I have to go. I have to go way back uh, with that that question. Uh, to answer the your question is actually where did American Open come from? Or right? Yeah. Um, as you know, I studied the Kempo, the Shotokan, the Shorinru, uh, and uh, uh, from Kacha Kempo, and uh, I just got so tired in the early seventies uh, of of uh, all the bull around styles. Uh, all styles are beautiful. All styles are wonderful. All styles bring to the plate a good menu. But uh, to say that this style and that style is better than this one or that one, and it's all about the person anyway. So I, I question my uh, teacher, my Oshihan, teacher of teachers, Mr. Trias, and I said, Mr. Trias, if I, if, if I write down on a piece of paper and make a small manual of what I like from all my studies of karate, and I want to call it a specific style, would you sponsor that? Would you give me uh, an accreditation for that, being the first person to bring karate to the United States in a dojo atmosphere? Would you authenticate that for me. Would you give me a charter? And he said, well, yeah, show me. So for the next year, I put a manual together and I sent it to him. And he sent me back my accreditation uh, and my charter. And I called it American Open Style Karate Do. And today it's, today it's a little different uh, because Mr. Pachivas from Florida uh, was my mentor when Mr. Trias passed away. And so I, my accreditations came from uh, uh, from John Pachivas as opposed to Robert who had passed away. So I, I needed that uh, uh, continued chartered accreditation because I believe you got to have a good pass and you better be able to back your stuff up because somebody's going to question you sometime about that. So you better have your stuff together and be honest about it. So I just said, Mr. Pachivas, uh, I need uh, my uh, Yudancha uh, from you. And Yudancha is different than just anything. It's, it's, a, it's, it's special. So he said, yeah. So in 2000, I, I think be just be, I would, my, my certification to Judan was the last certificate that John Pachivas signed before he died. So it was the right timing, it was the right thing to do. Uh, a man by the name of uh, uh, Ridgely Abel, Sensei Abel, uh, was my, was my uh, um, peer all through those years. And although we only played together slow, uh, we always communicated. Uh, he had his playground and I had my playground and the participants were from our specific areas. So his swing set was a little different than my swing set, but we were together in the playground. 
and uh, so uh, he was able to uh, uh, mediate that between me and Mr. Pachivas. And so that, 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 that created and solidified my system of study and I was able to give charters to other people. Uh, I'll probably ha I'll give you one of those one of these days here for what your studies are, for what you do for the arts, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Pena. We'll talk about those days as they come, as they happen. Uh, I have five uh, charters underneath mine now uh, since, uh, since uh, I was given my Yudansha. And so uh, uh, Mr. McCall has one. Uh, Mr. Ricky Smith has one. Um, Mr. D uh, 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 Dabney has one. Uh, Mr. C.J. Mayo has one. And uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Hariom Arakishna uh, has one. And he's in, uh, um, what's his name at State, Wisconsin. And he just does sticks, all Polynesian and, and Filipino. And, uh, that kind of stuff. So he's in charge of all my uh, Filipino uh, connections, uh, Kachikempo and all the soft style. The idea here is just to bring the arts under one umbrella. Well, no, no. It's, I mean, I, I have all the different systems are coming in, but to get into Akina, you better have your stuff together because I'm not going to listen to anything that's not, uh, uh, you know. And until I pass away, that's the way it's going to be. That's the way my senseis were. And, uh, long story short, I didn't get my black belt certificate from Mike Stone for 43 years. Tell us that story. You mean that's a that's a that's a funny story. Let's hear it. Oh, that's a funny story. I would love to meet Mike Stone. I don't know that it'll just call him up. I would love to meet Mike Stone. <laughs> Hanshi, I've got. I'd love to capture this on video and audio and, and just in my heart. I have. 15 names here that I've been um, adding to and then I have two questions. Oh, the Carolina, the Carolina. Some of them. Some of them are from throughout the country. Yeah. I want to spit out about 15 names <coughs> and I want you to tell me the first word or two or maybe the first sentence or two that comes to your mind. About these individuals? About these individuals. Yeah. If, it's, if you don't like them, just say pass and we'll move to the so next So it's going to be candid? 100%. <laughs> and that's why you're here. I okay, want you. Yeah. That's what I love yeah. about you. It's 15 of them. So, so who's going to edit this stuff? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I promise I'll take care of you. Okay. First, I've never met, um, but I have lineage through, and I've, I've researched and researched upon him, Ed Parker. Ed Parker. Uh, I have ha I had, when he was alive, his personal phone number. And him and I talked weekly. When Bruce Lee died... Uh, he came to my home in Charlotte, North Carolina on Park Road uh, after a Elvis Presley concert. Uh, and when Bruce Lee died, he, 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 him and I sat in my living room. Wow. And Mr. Parker is the only guy that I saw as a referee punch a man in the face and knock him out. Because <laughs> the guy wouldn't do what he was saying to do and he warned him three times. And after the third time, he grabbed his shoulder, popped him in the forehead, and, he, and the guy dropped. Wow. <laughs> Mr. Parker was Mr. Parker. And, I, and I've heard the same things over the years. Mr. Parker was Mr. Parker. A man I have great respect for in martial arts and in life, Sam Chapman. Oh, Sam Chapman. Uh... Sam will come help you no matter what, time, day, or night. I asked him to perform in a, in a, a martial art fight in, uh, in Columbia at halftime at a wrestling match. And he actually did it for me. And he had so much fun. His eyes would have been sticking around to get in there and fight at a professional wrestling match <laughs> uh, and do kickboxing. Uh, Sam also uh, uh, is a great trainer. Uh, and a believer in uh, the greater gain and all that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I have uh, full respect for Sam Chapman. I know you could talk forever and you've talked about him already. Um, just quickly, Robert Trias. Mr. Trias, uh, 
they call him Oshihan, uh, which is a master teacher, um, master of the masters. Uh, I, there's no there's no words to describe uh, uh, Robert Trias except for he was human. He made mistakes, but he guided and directed uh, karate in the early years, and he made the mold by which we all work today. That's about what I can say. He's the boss. He's the boss. The boss. El Jefe. Another one I've never met, and I would love to ride your coattails to meet him one day and spend five minutes with him. I'd be very happy. Mike Stone. I just told him on May 19th that I was coming here and that I was going to do a fire walk with you and my, and my uh, students. And he said, oh, that's very good, Jerry, because he's Hawaiian, you know. He said, but save the fire, put a couple emu, uh, build a emu and put some pigs in there so you save the fire. <laughs> and then he said, and then he said, I want to ride your coattails and meet that man one day. He said, hold on, I'm going to show you this. You get a kick out of it. He's so bright. Okay. I have to go over here first. Okay. Okay, I said, I said here, I said, Sensei, my wife Eva is an RN and she studied this. We were talking uh, about some Scientology and we were talking about some uh, uh, firewalks and how to get rid of fears and, uh, and he said, so nice to hear from you, your love and respect. And I said, yeah, I'm going to have a, fi uh, a firewalk, Hawaiian style, uh, you see, and there's, a, see this, I, I think that's Mr. Smith. Uh, walking. McClellan, perhaps, too. Yeah, right? that's Mr. Smith. Smith, that's right. Years ago. Uh, so, so I showed him, I sent him that picture, and he goes, Awesome, awesome, don't waste a fire. Put a couple of pigs in the emu. <laughs> and I said, I will, thanks. God is great and beer is good. And beer is good. And this was just last week. So, my, 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 my thing with Mike Stone is that Mike is an Hawaiian-born barefooted boy. And he, uh, his teacher was Herbert Peters. And, uh, Have you ever Herb met him, Herbert Peters? Yes, and he lives in Hawaii, and Mike just saw him last summer. Uh, and Mike's father was a sheriff, a uh, policeman uh, on the island of Maui. And Mike grew up in Maui. He was a great athlete in school. And he joined the service and got his black belt uh, in one year, less than a year, uh, from Herbert Peters. Came to the, the mainland and went to Parker, Parker put him together. He opened a school in Los Alamitos, and he was very, very successful. His wife was Fran. He had a beautiful daughter. Uh, 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 they got divorced. He married uh, Elvis Presley's wife, uh, the, and all the his stuff is history. Uh, he was in movies. Mike was a great individual. Um, but today, he's even greater than he was then, in my opinion, because he is a personal uh, trainer of people and a motivator, uh, and he travels the world motivating people and allows people to come into his home, and he fixes food for them every day and works out with them every day as a uh, personal trainer. So, yeah, that's Mike Stone. Keep on moving. Um, two people that I know you have a lot of love for. If we could be quick, I got several more names to go through. Ricky and Randy Smith. Now the Goldust Twins as they're called. Uh, Randy is a prevaricator, a procrastinator, <laughs> a very loving boy, a great Christian, uh, uh, worked as a uh, uh, youth pastor for years, lifeguard at the beach, but still a prevaricator and a procrastinator. Ricky Smith is a divine creature sent to us from the Great Spirit 
to guide and direct his brother Randy. <laughs> <laughs> to guide and direct his brother Randy. Tell me about, I've met him a handful of times and I'll leave it at that, but I want to hear your quick, candid comments on Victor Moore. Victor Moore needs a lot of help. Uh, Victor uh, was the, some of the, one of the greatest uh, sport karate fighters uh, that I ever participated with. I was on a team with him. The America's team uh, was Joe Lewis, Jerry Pennington, John Korab, J.T. Well, and Victor Moore. And we fought the Wally Slokey team, uh, who brought in some Japanese experts to kick our butt. But in Canada, we won the match. Uh, uh, and Victor Moore was on that team. Uh, Victor was a uh, second generation of Robert Trias. Um, Victor uh, uh, was kind of an egomaniac uh, and uh, let, I think, a lot of that go to his head. But uh, as we all do, uh, he was a little more extreme. Uh, he has an association right now uh, uh, that's he connects to Mr. Trias, and rightfully so, because he has the right to do that. But... Uh, uh, off the record, uh, or on the record, Victor's very cool, uh, but I don't care for his annex. Thank you. Three more people. I've had the pleasure of meeting this gentleman one time, and I spent five or ten minutes with him, and I'll never forget it in my soul. Chuck Norris. Mr. Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris. 1966. 65, 64. Uh, Torrance, California, uh, what's the name of that street, uh, downtown Torrance, California, El, not El Prado. Anyways, he had a school there in Torrance, California, and, uh, went to that school, uh, trained with, uh, Jerry Taylor and Vic Guerrera and, uh, Bob Burrows. And Chuck Norris, uh, uh, that, that came, John Natividad, uh, Bob Burbage came out of that group. Um, anyways, they, uh, I trained with Chuck and them guys in their dojos in the late 60s. And uh, Chuck was always Chuck. I started the Four Seasons with Mike Stone about that time. Um, uh, let's see, uh, I've known Chuck uh, since before anybody was famous in the movies. We were just a bunch of young bucks having a good time, sweating in the karate schools, making our technique sharp and good. Uh, he has two children uh, named the same ages as my two children. Uh, I have a son named Aaron. He has a son named Aaron. I have a son named Eric. He has a son named Eric. Um, uh, I used to help him set up the Four Seasons. Chuck and I are good friends. He just signed uh, and authenticated uh, my system of study and my organization to pass it on to my uh, uh, next in line. Chuck's a wonderful man. A couple of the Carolina man, uh, legends before we're done, and one of my personal favorites, if you could quickly tell me something that comes to your head about the Southern Superman, Ronnie Barcoot. <clears throat> Ronnie Barcoot was an island unto himself. Um, he had a way of thinking of things that were um, one way. If it wasn't Ronnie's way, it was the highway. Ronnie Barcoot was a highly skilled physical specimen. Uh, he cared about people, but he did have a, a sense of priority, uh, I would call eccentric ego. But he's a great guy. And he fought great martial artists. Uh, he came to my tournaments, all four of them. And uh, I had a great time with Ronnie Barcoot. He came to my school. I sparred and went out, drank with him, had good times with him. I like Ronnie Barcoot, except you, don't, you wouldn't want to hang out with him 24-7. <laughs> Two more um, of the legends of Carolina martial arts. I don't know how much interaction you've had with him. I know you know him. Um, I've got a picture of him here in my office. James White. The White Brothers. I had, I produced a uh, uh, bunch of uh, full contact fights in uh, in Charlotte uh, for uh, Ted Turner's group, and I, I I produced a lot of fights for my group, the NKA. 
but one, one that comes to mind with James White is uh, he was just a young boy and he has brother Nathaniel was uh, coming down to my school and working out once in a while. And James came to me and he was just a young boy, beautiful body, great shape. said, I want to fight. I want to fight, Mr. Piddington. I said, okay, I'll take pictures of you and put you in the Telstar magazine. He said, you will, you will, you will. I go, yeah. And I did, and he fought, and James White was uh, part of that uh, Charlotte Warhawk group as a uh, up-and-comer. I like James White, yeah. To me, he was always one of the few that I knew that physically could get it done in all the areas. We talk about sport karate and the weapons and the forms and the fighting. Yeah. He'd walk out of there a lot of times with first place in all of those. The last one that I want to ask you about very quickly <coughs> I hold an extremely high regard, and I will to the day I die, Ridgely Abel. Ridgely Abel started with uh, uh, Oshihan. He was the scribe, um, which is the recorder and the uh, um, history of uh, USKA and Shurai Karate Do, um, which was with Mr. Trias. Uh, finally captivated uh, at the Budokan in Japan through Ridgely Abel's studies and Ridgely Abel's endeavors. So he was a, a, a rock for Mr. Trias. And uh, uh, he was in that group with Pete Rabino and uh, 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 Mr. Trias's daughter. And uh, that group were select people. Bill Wallace was in that group. Uh, Parker Shelton was in that group. Um, Ridgely was a stronghold. He's an anchor. Uh, if somebody needed something, Ridgely would be there. If they needed part of the history, or they needed some authorization, or they needed certification, he would intercede for them. Ridgely Abel was a uh, an honorable, I'd call him a priest. Yeah, Ridgely Avery was, Absolutely. yeah, yeah that, that's where I would go with Ridgely. Um, I only asked him for two things in my life, and he gave them both to me, so what can I say, you know what I mean? <laughs> Out of everything that you have accomplished, everything that you have seen, everything that you have done in your almost 60 years of martial arts, you can't choose two. What do you think is your biggest achievement that you've done spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, financially, put it all together. What is the... In the martial art. In the martial arts. Because there's so much more out there. Oh, and there's so much in the martial arts. We yeah. can talk for hours. Um, think about it for a minute if you want to. So can you say to ask the question and more simply? I've done a lot of wonderful things in martial arts. I've won tournaments. I've promoted students to black belts. Okay, I'm I'm my biggest triumph somehow maybe would be combining all of those I don't know I want just whatever your answer is this, you tell me what's on your heart there's a lot there man <laughs> I mean there's tons there but uh, what comes to my mind is one young man actually two but you say I can't I can't choose two um, so now I have to make a choice between those you two can boys. Choose two. I could choose two yes sir one is named uh, uh, James Voitas, W-O-J-T-A-S, James Voitas. Uh, he came to me at four years old, still peeing in his pants, and uh, I changed his life. No one would work with him, no one in our community, no psychologists, no uh, medical workers, nobody. His mother was crying in my office, please take my child. And. Uh, I changed the, the life of that child. How long ago was that? That was in 1994. And today it's a wonder. Um, and then uh, another boy, his name was uh, Tony Engel. Stage four, uh, uh, um, what do they call that? Um, everybody's got it, ADHD, but more than that. Uh, stage four, uh, um, when a person is smart, but they're not smart. Uh, autistic. Uh, aut autistic. autistic. Uh, and he was scratching a hole in the top of his head when I met the boy. And uh, I worked with him for two years every day from eight o'clock in the morning 
until five o'clock at night. Think about that. Every day, five days a week. Got him out of bed, got him to take care of himself, taught him how to take care of himself instead of crapping in the sink in the bathroom, instead of peeing in the corner of the bedroom. I got him to change his life. Two years every day from eight to five. And his father luckily had the money and his father was still taking care of him in some fashion because he'll always need some help, but got him to stop kicking teachers in the balls, got him to stop his violence, got him to stop his fixations, got him to read Cat in Hat, uh, and yet he could memorize every street in our town. And I worked with him every day. I wanted to get a dog because my dog died. And in, the, in, the, in taking care of the boy, he said, for four, day, four days in a row, Hunchy, you need a new dog. Hunchy, you need a new dog. 750 times a day. Hunchy, you need a new dog. So after the fourth day, I said, okay, Tony. I went to the pound. And I said, Tony, you're going to go in there and you're going to get me a dog. He went in there and he picked a black lab. Pitbull mix. And he said, Hunchy, this is your dog. I got that dog. I had that dog for 15 years. That dog did everything. Swam with me, hiked with me, jumped with me, dove with me. Stayed by my side, went everywhere with me. And that dog died here a couple years ago, but I changed that boy's life. And without karate do, none of that would have been possible. But that's what comes to my mind. You're a, I don't use this term, I, use this, I don't use this term very often. You are truly a grand master of the arts You've fought and you've competed in every tournament in the world. You are a pioneer and you're a visionary of martial arts and a historian. You're in my house, in my chair, in my office. And when I just asked you what your biggest triumphs were, they had nothing to do with kicking and punching. They had to do with helping other people. And that's what a grandmaster is in my brain. I love you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. For allowing me to vent this. Because, you know, talking about the, the, uh, the journey, um, I have a few men in my life that have given me and mentored me, uh, but I also have a great woman and women who have mentored me. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't hold a candlestick to a lot of men, but I'll tell you what, my journey's been beautiful, and it's still going on. It doesn't, you know, it's still... That's the, that's the shit right there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a happening deal, you know. There's a party going on, and we're on the playground. Thank you. You're welcome. We're done. I could have sat here and listened to you talk for six more hours, unfortunately. We gotta go. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're going for...